Good morning and welcome you guys. It's such an honor to be with you uh, in on Church Online. As many of you know, we literally have hundreds of people all throughout the month click in at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings and they try our One Church Online campus and we have a fantastic volunteer who helps and chats with them. And the cool thing about today is because of the snow and the in the ice that all of us get to try church online. So uh, it's just such an honor to be with you guys. We're in week four of our series, Your Big Moment, and we're talking about Esther. And one of the things that we've been looking at in this series is that every once in a while, all of us, we find ourselves in a big moment. Something happens to us, something happens with us, something happens in us, and uh, this thing defines us uh, many times, uh, either a season of life or really throughout our entire lives. And all of us, we want to leave an impact. All of us will leave an impact. And that's what we want to talk about today is what type of impact will you leave? Esther is not a book that gets preached about a lot, to be honest with you. And if you've been kind of following this the past three weeks, uh, the book of Esther is just kind of a strange book because it never mentions God's name. It never, uh, nobody in the book prays. Everybody in the book makes kind of weird, morally fuzzy, ambiguous choices. And uh, you don't see any miracles in the book of Esther. And I got to be honest with you, that's just kind of comforting for me because so many times the book of Esther just parallels my story because so many times I look at my life and uh, I struggle and God is not really uh, apparent and he's not making himself obvious and it's just kind of ordinary and I'm not experiencing a lot of miracles. And one of the cool things is we've been kind of looking at and through this book is that even though God seems absent, uh, he's always present. He's always present. And maybe some of you, you're tuning in today, and the reason why you've not believed in God up to this point is because you can't see a lot of evidence of God's activity in the world. Um, you don't experience miracles. Um, you feel like when you, when you pray, he doesn't really answer. Um, and uh, it's just God seems absent. Um, but God is present. He is present, even when everyone would say that he seems absent. Well, today we're going to be continuing looking at these five characters found in the book of Esther. And uh, uh, as you can tell on the screen, there's a graphic, and I want to go through those five, if you will, today. Uh, on your uh, left, you see King Xerxes, and he is um, the king of the most biggest, of the, of the biggest superpower of that time, Persia. It's in 483 B.C., about 500 years before uh, Jesus is around. And Queen, uh, excuse me, King Xerxes had a queen named Vashti, and they had this marital spat, and Vashti gets off the scene pretty quickly, and... Uh, he does a beauty pageant. Xerxes holds a beauty pageant. And that's where we're introduced to Esther. Uh, Esther, that's her Persian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. And uh, she's an orphan. Her cousin Mordecai is on the bottom right, as you can tell. And Mordecai uh, is um, not only her cousin, but also um, her adoptive parent because Esther lost her her parents when she was very young. And then next week, uh, we're going to look at the middle character, Haman. He's the bad guy. And uh, he is uh, really a study of selfishness. Uh, he's the prime minister. He works for Xerxes. And he's this chief bureaucratic official. Uh, let me kind of read to you uh, a little bit about Esther's big moment we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This is in Esther chapter 2, verses 17 and 10. It says this, The king was so delighted with Esther that he set the royal crown upon her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. But Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. 
Today, we're really going to focus in on Mordecai, this guy, Mordecai. Who was he? And our big idea today really revolves around Mordecai's life, and it's simply this. Your actions today impact a generation tomorrow. Your actions today impact a generation tomorrow. Think about that. Your actions today impact a generation tomorrow. I know some of you, you're thinking, is that really true? I mean, uh, because I don't know if really my actions that I'm, that's happening today on February the 22nd, this Sunday morning that we're snowed in, is it really going to impact a generation for tomorrow? Because we don't feel like we're doing anything significant with our life. And some of you are thinking, you know what, I'm just a student. I'm just a high schooler. I'm just a teenager. Um, nothing I do today, nothing I do today is really going to make a lasting impact. And some of you, you're in your early 20s, you're in your early 30s. And you're thinking, you know what, I'm probably not going to be famous. Uh, I I don't have a position of power. Uh, My rank is kind of low if you're in the army. And nothing I'm ever going to do is going to impact in a generation. So I don't know if I believe that. Well, just think about that. Let's hit the pause button for that. Let's talk about that. Some of you are in your 40s and your 50s, and you're thinking, my big moment hasn't come yet. And you're kind of getting that midlife crisis thing, and you're thinking, I've not had a big impact up to this point. And you're really pushing back on this idea that your actions today is going to impact the generation for tomorrow. And and, and people aren't going to talk about me like they're talking about Esther and Mordecai 2,400 years after the fact because I am not a powerful person. I don't have, I don't have this influential um, whatever. But again, I just I want you to think about that because in this story, when we first meet Mordecai, he has no power. And he doesn't have really in a position of influence. And uh, even though he didn't have any power or influence at the beginning of this book, in the, in the beginning of this story, um, there's a lot of, of, of political figures that happened around the time of Esther and Mordecai that you probably have heard of. Here, let me throw you out a couple. Pericles. Pericles is a guy, he's a famous military figure. Again, his uh, picture's up on the screen. Uh, He's a Greek dude. Um, Some of you may have heard of him. Or what about this next one? Socrates. Socrates, you probably heard of him. He's a famous philosopher. Uh, He was born in the lifetime of Esther and Mordecai. Another guy named Pythagoras. You might remember him from math. Dear Jesus. Anybody remember the Pythagorean theorem? Um, Because I don't. I mean, that brings back really bad memories for me that I've taken a lot of counseling to get over. Uh, But the Pythagorean theorem states that the sum of the squares of the length of the sides of a right triangle is equal to the square of the length of the hypotenuse. Yeah, that didn't change my life. Um, 2,400 years later, though, we're, we're talking about Pythagoras, and we're studying the Pythagorean theorem. Some of you, you've heard of Socrates, and you, I mean, you've studied Socrates. You've heard that guy. And again, these guys are happening during the time of Mordecai and Esther. See, the reality is you don't know when a moment is going to come along that is going to impact the next generation. You just don't know. You might be bebopping and scatting along thinking, you know what, I'm never going to be famous, I'm never going to be significant, I'm never going to have a lasting impact. But as we saw last week, as we looked at the book of Esther, your character in the little moments determines your legacy in the big moments. How you're acting today in these little moments on a Sunday morning when snow and ice are melting, hopefully, (laughs) um, your character is being formed in these little moments. And they will determine what your legacy will become. And when we saw Esther's big moment last week, her finally arrived, those morally ambiguous choices 
that she had made before all of that happened just kind of followed her into her big moment. And, uh, and if, here's the thing. If you're making good choices now, those good choices are going to follow you into your big moment. And if you're making poor choices now, then they're going to follow you into your next moment. And you think, so many of us, we talked about this last week, we think, you know, when my big moment comes, when my time arrives, if I ever hit the lottery, if I ever get the promotion, if I ever find Mr. and Mrs. Wright, then if I ever get my big break, it's going to change me. And then I'm going to become generous. And then I'm going to become kind. And we looked at last week that we believe this whole idea that a big moment will make me better is false. If you're not generous with the money that you got right now, you're not going to be generous with money you're going to get because you're probably never going to get it. Jesus said it this way in Luke 16.10. He says this, If you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And I believe Jesus is right. I know that's a shocker. But your character in those little moments will determine your legacy in those big moments. And that leads us into our big idea today. Your actions today will impact a generation for tomorrow. Your actions today will impact a generation for tomorrow. See, here's the thing. The decisions that you're making right now will have an impact. The decisions that you made last Friday night... They're going to they're gonna make an impact on your future marriage. The decisions that you're making are gonna, right now on Saturday night is going to impact your future family. Uh, and it's going to impact it because you're going to bring all of that baggage into it or not bring all of that baggage into it. Here's the reality. All of us are going to spend our next 20 years in our 20s, 30s, and 40s unpacking the messy baggage we carried into a relationship because of the years that we were single. That's one option. Or the other option is this. Or we're going to spend on our 20s, 30s, and 40s, we're going to spend being able to give to others because we never engaged in those activities or we've, we've already sorted through that junk in our past. All of us think, you know what, my actions have no impact on other people, but they will and that they do. In fact, all you've got to do is you've got to talk to somebody who's a little bit older than you and ask them, you know, the decisions that you made when you were dating... And when you crossed that line and you weren't pure, did that make an impact on your marriage that you have today? And almost all of them will say, absolutely. They had to work through that. And there's a passage that we're really going to dig in today. And, and, and it's a passage, I've got to be honest with you, it kind of ticks me off. And, it, and as, when you kind of first read it, it doesn't make a lot of sense and it kind of makes you mad. But it's Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 9. And it says this, Deuteronomy 5 9 says this. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now listen to this next part. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children into the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Now when you hear that, you're probably thinking, you know what, that doesn't seem fair. I don't want to worship a God uh, like that. You're telling me that the impact of my grandparents is going to have an impact on me. And so many people, when they first read this, they think that God is punishing them and punishing the next generation. But I don't think that's what Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9 is saying at all. In fact, I don't think it's about punishment. I think it just describes what already happens. I think that the Bible is just acknowledging what is true, that impact is just inevitable. Impact is inevitable. If you're thinking my actions don't have any impact on anybody, you're just plain wrong. 
You are. Because impact is inevitable. You're going to have an impact either positively or negatively in the next generation tomorrow just because they're hanging out with you. And you may say, well, that's not fair. And I would say, you're right. It's not fair. Your children deserve better. They do. My children deserve better. So let's stop screwing up. Because whatever you're doing today, it is going to have an impact on the generation for tomorrow. If you don't want your kids to grow up bitter, then stop being a bitter mom. If you don't want your children growing up to become sex addicts, then stop looking at pornography, Dad. If you don't want your kids to grow up violent, then stop being angry and stop getting into fights. Impact is inevitable. It just is. The Bible says that, that your actions that you do today are going to impact a generation tomorrow. But let's keep on reading in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But I lavish unfailing love for thousands of generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. In other words, this principle works either for the positive or for the negative. You can either do it for the positive in God's word and God's love is just going to be lavished upon thousands of generations or your junk and your baggage is going to be spread out over tons of generations. You have today, you have a choice of what you want that to look like. Let's dive into Mordecai and let's see some of the choices that he and Esther made and how it impacted those ripples in the tons of generations. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa by the name of Mordecai. He was from the what? The tribe of Benjamin and was the descendant of who? Kish. One day as Mordecai was on duty in the king's palace, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. Now this is quite common in that time because as we learn in history, Xerxes, he's eventually, he becomes assassinated, right? But look what it says, verse 22 and 23. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to who? Queen Esther. Now remember, Mordecai and Esther are cousins, right? Then she then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were what? Oh, that's going to be kind of painful, right? Impaled on a sharpened pole. Normally, if you rescue the king's life, you're going to be rewarded, right? I mean, you're either going to get power, you're going to get money, you're going to get both. And uh, that's normally what happens in that time. But you know what happens with Mordecai? You know how he gets rewarded? He gets nothing. Mordecai gets passed over. And for some of you, you'd say, man, that's my story, Chris. You know, I work and I work hard and I just feel like I just keep on getting passed over on the promotion. And you were supposed to get the offer, but it didn't happen. And some of you, you can relate to Mordecai. So what do you do in a moment like that? Because your character in little moments are going to determine your legacy in the big moments. Let's fast forward. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted who? Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire, the most powerful official outside of Xerxes. And here's the bad guy. Bum, bum, bum. Right? Here's where the soundtrack changes. Boom, boom, right? I mean, this guy is a 
terrible guy. In fact, we're going to kind of unpack his history, but he was an Agagite, which means he came from a descendant of Agag. And we're going to see that these Agagites were people who were historically opposed to the Jews. If you go back into Jewish history, Haman had a great, 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 great grandfather named Agag, who was a part of the Amalekite people. And we're going to see how, how that story, 500 years even before this one, is going to impact the present of Esther and Mordecai. Verse 2. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. So for the king uh, had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Dude, why are you disobeying the king's command? Verse 4. They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order. So this isn't just an oversight. This isn't an accident. This is a deliberate slight of Haman. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. Since Mordecai had told him he was a what? A Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. Now, why is Haman so ticked? Why is he so angry and filled with hatred? Well, it's because of of Mordecai's conduct. He's not willing to bow, but it also goes something much, much deeper. These two people had a history. Their family had a history. You've heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys? Well, here you have the Mordecais and the Hamans. And let's go back to Esther 2.5, and I want to show you a couple of words here. At the time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa named Mordecai. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, remember that. And he was a descendant of Kish. Mordecai was a descendant from the first king of Israel. His name was King Saul. King Saul's dad was Kish. And King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's found, by the way, what we're, I don't have a lot of time to dig into this scripture, but you can go back and look at it yourself in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Haman's ethnic description was that Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekite people. So, follow me with me. Haman is a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, the enemies of the Jews. And Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul, the first king of the Jews. All right, And what we're going to tell you, this history of Mordecai and Haman, it really does illustrate that your actions today will impact a generation from tomorrow. Because Esther happens in 43 B.C. We're going to to rewind it to about 1,000 B.C. And we're going to look at King Saul, the very first king of Israel. Because here's what happens. God told the first king of Israel, King Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekite people. God tells Saul to completely wipe them out because God knows something that Saul doesn't. And here's what God knows, is that Saul's actions would impact a generation of tomorrow. And here's what God told Saul. Go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything that they have. Don't don't leave a thing alive for they are what? Evil. But Saul doesn't listen and follow God's command. And Saul's disobedience has a huge impact Not only on his own life, but on the lives 500 years later of Mordecai 
and Esther and all of these people. So Saul decides not to kill everything. Saul decides to keep some people alive. Saul disobeys God, and his disobedience ripples 500 years into the future, into the time of Esther, because one of the people that Saul kept alive was an evil king of the Amalekites. His name was Agag. This is 1 Samuel 15, 20. He says this. But Saul said, I brought back who? King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Now again, remember, what line is Mordecai from? He's from Saul's line. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, Kish. And Haman is from the the line of Agag. So Haman represents this evil nation that God told Saul to wipe out. And Saul disobeyed. And here's the thing. If King Saul would have obeyed 500 years earlier, then Haman would not be around trying to kill all of the Jews. And we're really going to unpack this next week. Saul's disobedience 500 years before this is now resulting in a holocaust of the entire race because Haman gets so angry at Mordecai, he makes his decision to wipe out an entire group of people. Your actions today will impact a generation for tomorrow. Saul's sin, Saul's disobedience to God, 1000 B.C., affects Mordecai and Esther in 483 B.C. Now, here's why we need to camp out on this, because many times we choose again to do that bad habit, when we choose again to gossip, when we choose again to run to that addiction, we believe that, you know what, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not. I'm just hurting myself, that my bad choices, my bad habits, my sin isn't affecting anyone but me. But that's a lie. Because your actions today will impact a generation for tomorrow. Again, we're talking about Haman next week, but let's dig in as we kind of close in and let's going to be reading a lot of scripture. This is in Esther 3, 6. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, Haman had, so he decided it was not enough to just lay hands on Mordecai alone. So he makes this personal, verse 6. Instead, he looks for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. This is the first attempt at a holocaust. And when you think of Haman, think Hitler. I mean, that's how evil this guy was. Persia consists of 127 provinces, we learn in Esther 1.1. It's a huge thing, and, and Haman is going to wipe out every Jew. All right? Why? Because Saul's actions 500 years before impacted a generation. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, verse 7, lots were cast in Haman's presence. And by the way, the lots were called Purim. To decide the best day and the month to take action. Now let me just kind of explain this a little bit. This is a little weird. Um, this was very common in those days to cast lots. And lots were just dice. Dice that was thrown to determine what the gods would want them to do. And even in the Bible, God's people would cast dice. The umum and the thummum. I, believe it, I know some of you are like, what did he just say? But anyway, go back and look. It, it, just to kind of determine what God's will is. Now, we don't have to do that today. Because you and I, we have the Holy Spirit. He directs us. Keep on reading. And the day selected was March the 7th, nearly a year later. So this guy, Haman, is shooting craps and trying to kill the lives of millions of people. Verse 8, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of the empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. And Haman's not really giving Xerxes, the king, uh, all of the details because it's personal. Haman isn't even mentioning the people group. He just says, these people are just a little different. And Haman was right because some of you, you've heard the word holy, right? The word holy means separate. It means to be different. 
It means to be set apart. It means to be distinct. In the right ways, not the wrong ways. But here's what Haman continues, verse 8. Their laws are different than those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. So again, Haman doesn't give a lot of details. He's just Haman equate Hitler. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they should be destroyed, and I will give you, look at this, 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Now, let's 10,000 sacks. That's a lot, right? How much is 10,000 sacks of large silver, right? The estimated total revenue for the entire Persian Empire for an entire, for an annual, right, was about 13 talents, 13,000 talents of silver a year. So Haman is offering 10,000 talents of silver, and it's about 70% of their income. That's a lot of money. Now, Haman's offer comes at an opportune time because Xerxes had just finished waging a disastrous war against Greece. Again, remember the movie 300? Uh, Xerxes is that guy in there, right? And, but in real life, the war against Greece was almost bankrupting Xerxes in Persia. Xerxes needed some money. And by the way, anytime you're desperate in financial need, very rarely do you ever make wise decisions. You, your decisions are usually reactive rather than and not active when you're in financial trouble. Verse 10. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Agagite, excuse me, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do whatever you see fit. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink. But all of the city of Susa fell into confusion. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on burlap and ashes, which is a sign of sadness. And he went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. Mordecai's sad. And he puts on his clothes kind of reflect his inner demeanor. And he decides to take his problem to Queen Esther. Because remember, she's a Jew but nobody knows that she's a Jew. Look at verse 8 and 9. Mordecai gave Hatak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked Hatak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked this guy to direct her to go to the king and to beg for mercy and to plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. So Mordecai's taking this massive problem to Esther. And he says, God, Esther, we could all die. Uh, it looks like we may all be dead anyway. Esther, you've got the ear of the king. Maybe Xerxes will listen to you. But as we looked at last week, Esther kind of hesitates. And, and she doesn't want to get involved. And why? Because her fuzzy character, her fuzzy moral decision she's made up to this point is following her into her big moment. And she says, you know what, I've not seen him in 30 days, and he doesn't really want to hang out with me, and uh, unless he raises his gold scepter, I'm dead, and I just don't want to get involved. But look what Mordecai, how bold he is. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at such a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. By the way, that's me. I'm your relative. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. 
Here we are 2,400 years later talking about this. Do I think 2,400 years later that people are going to be sitting around and talking about what you and I did today on February the 22nd on the snow day? Probably not. But your actions do have an impact on the generation for tomorrow because the thing about Mordecai is he had no idea that this was going to be his big moment. And, and Esther didn't know that this was going to be her big moment. And they both don't know the end of the story. Mordecai didn't know that a people would be talking about this 2,400 years later. He didn't know, and guess what? You don't know either. And even if that never happens, you and I still have to pay attention to the characters, our character in those little moments, because your character in those little moments, they're going to determine your legacy. Think about your actions today. Think about when, when, the, when this goes offline and what you're going to do with your children what are you going to do with them? Because how you're going to treat them, how you're going to act with them, how you're going to treat your spouse, that's going to determine your generation. That's going to have this effect, this rippling effect. For those of you who are just starting out, I know this is in future tense, all of this is, but that is what you're going to bring into your marriage, what you did that last Friday night, what you did last weekend and on your spring break. That's what you're going to bring into your family. That's the legacy that you are going to leave. It can be positive. Or it could be negative, but it is inevitable. You will have an impact. And before we close, let me just talk to you about Haman and about what his name actually means. This bad guy, he was a descendant of who? Agag. It's like Agag. But let me show you what the words Agag and Haman actually mean so that you can see what gets passed down from generation to generation. The word Agag means angry. It means angry. 500 years later, do you know what anger has reproduced? Well, the name Haman sounds like the Hebrew word for wrath. What do you think you get when generations later, when you start out with anger and nobody stops it? You've got wrath. If you don't deal with your agag, it's going to produce a Haman. It will. So what's your Haman? What's your Haman right now? Because children of alcoholics many times grow up to be alcoholics. Children of addicts become addicted. Many times children who've been abused grow up abusing children. And parents who have explosive anger raise children whose anger explodes. And you may have gotten it from your dad, and now you're passing it down to your children. But do not think for a moment that your actions today won't have an impact on a generation tomorrow because it will. Because if you want to influence the next generation and your children's children, and then start, and then if that's the case, you need to start changing you now. Because the Bible says if you want to influence your children and their children and even their children's children's children, it all starts with you and it starts with me. Because all of us have an impact. All of us do. It's just determining is it going to be a positive impact or is it going to be a negative impact? What are you doing now? This is a challenge. What are you doing now that you don't want your children to be doing in 20 years? Think about that. What are you doing now that you don't want your children to be doing in 20 years? Do you want your children to be rageaholics? Do you want your kids growing up bitter, angry, stingy, controlled by fear? Do you want your kids to grow up hooked on drugs or hooked on cigarettes, alcoholics? If you don't want that, then dad, mom, you have to stop that now. Now. Because your actions 
will have an impact on them. You've got to stop being addict now. You've got to stop smoking now. You gotta, if you want to change your children's future, change your present. And let me tell you, God can do that. He can do that right now. And the reason why Haman existed and almost killed an entire people group is because of a disobedience of King Saul 500 years before. And if you don't face your agags, they're going to turn into Haman's. So as I close, I just want to say this. For some of you, this is a, this is a wake-up call. And if you, if you want to see your children really be different than you, then you're going to have to change. And I, I hear me, I don't think this is going to happen because you have more willpower. I think the way that you can experience change is through Jesus Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that, that behold, uh, when we're in Christ, we become a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And if you want a new lot on life, if you want to really change, your first step in doing that is you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. You can do that from your living room, as you're sitting by the fire, as your children are watching on. And my encouragement is as we close, I'm just going to ask everybody to pray. So leave the sound up. Everybody just close your eyes and just talk to God. And I'm going to invite you that if you need to begin that relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want to be made new, you can do that right now. God, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I know I've tried changing all of this on my own. I've tried changing my my future. I've tried changing my present, and it just hasn't worked. So God, right now, I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life. Lord, that you would wipe all this junk away, all of my sin that's just separated me from your love. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would renew me, that you would make me new. And Lord, that I would be that change I desperately want to see in my children. Lord, that you would make that change in me now. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. It's such an honor to be doing this and being able to do church with you. And we're looking forward to seeing you next week. Thanks.